Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dope Black Podcast. I am joined by, in fact, before I give you his name, I'm going to tell you a bit about this amazing person I've got in front of me. He is the Christian Johnson Endeavor Professional Professor in Education, Leadership and Director of the Endeavor Anti-Racist um, Restorative Leadership Initiative, which is ERLI for short in the Department of Organization and Leadership at Teachers College. This guy knows a lot about education. I am met with Mark Anthony Gooden. Mark, how are you doing today, my man? I'm doing fine, Cameron. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. No worries, no worries. And like I said, I I like to have conversations um, with these kind of podcasts. And I kind of want to get to know you a bit more as well about your story and how you kind of got to where you're at. So if you could um, kind of like think of key moments in your life that have kind of got you from when you were blessed on this earth to where you are now, what was what's your kind of story? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, so I would say uh, I was I was born uh, in a, uh, a southern part of the United States in a, in a place called Albany, Georgia, and uh, we grew up uh, certainly in, in a space where I was affirmed by uh, by my mother initially, who I consider to be you know really my first teacher. Uh, although we did not have a lot of uh, financial resources. Uh, there was a lot of love in the house and a lot of support uh, in, in, in terms of telling me that I could do anything I wanted to in terms of education, uh, recognizing my brilliance from a very early age. And uh, I had some other uh, relatives and, and, and other teachers out there who were uh, aunts and uncles. Uh, but also I had some pretty solid folks in, in terms of education, uh, teachers who came to my aid and who were there to support me. Uh, for instance, I remember one uh, being my favorite mathematics teacher, who uh, just took just took me under her wing in in, in high school uh, and supported me and told me uh, early on that I was going to go to college. Uh, even before that, there was a, a gentleman named uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Webb who, uh, even after I did not make the basketball team, recognized my brilliance and said that you know you may not be the best athlete, but you certainly are a good mathematician. So I'm going to invite you on the team to to be a statistician. And I don't know what that was at the time. But it really meant I was going to be traveling with the team and I was going to support them and keeping up with the stats and in terms of telling him where people shot from the floor and those kinds of things. And I thought it was really exciting to, just to be able to travel with the team. Uh, so so just once again, affirming my, my brilliance, even when I wasn't always successful in that educational setting. And, uh, and that meant the world to, world to me, man, because I loved going to school. It was just a wonderful uh exchange to engage in socially and it, I just I, I love school from the very very beginning and was that loving school because of like the people you're interacting with or just like being in a situation where you're learning a lot like what was the main thing that kind of drew you to school yeah good question camera I believe it was a little bit of both I mean just the, the idea of learning and discovery and and recognizing and once again being affirmed and being told that I was smart I was intelligent I was capable and I was a little bit competitive too. So I, I, after a while, I got that that kind of notion that, you know, I should be like the top performer in the class. I should be recognized for my brilliance. And, and uh, of course, there were people along the way who were just as smart and certainly smarter, but, but that was a little bit of a challenge. It was like school 
gave him a chance to compete academically in something that I was certainly recognized in. Uh, but also the social piece was really important for me on so many levels. Uh, one, uh, because I grew up in humble beginnings, uh, my mother uh, certainly had been in a couple of relationships and was uh, uh, hoping to find, um, you know, the, the, the American dream in, in, that, in that sense. And, and sometimes those choices resulted in uh, some, some uh, you know, really some, uh, an unpleasant household. So at home, there was some domestic violence stuff going on. And, and that was something that f- made me feel less than and made me always uh, curious about how I could, one, support my mother, but at the same time, left me feeling uh, honestly uh, some days feeling just depressed and not feeling uh, affirmed. But when I got to the school environment, it was a way to essentially escape that for a period of time and then be affirmed there and then remember my mother's lessons and, and, and my mother, again, always affirming me and saying that you, you're you going to you know really do something in this world that's going to be uh, productive and, and supportive of people. Do you, do you feel like that whole like affirmation from like people you look up to for like or like people who you would instantly they have to be kind of role models like your, your parents and your teachers do you feel like that's kind of lost now in education or do you feel like it's just there as much or how important is that as well yeah very good question i i feel as if it is still there i know uh, of teachers who are still there to, to support students but I believe in in some ways uh, there has been a loss. Uh, there has been a disconnect. For instance, we're, we're still trying to determine if we are actually coming out of a pandemic. Uh, but that pandemic, I, I, I can only imagine what that would have done for me as a student, not being able to be in a physical space with teachers. Uh, I know uh, for many years of, of doing this sort of research as a part of my research that I'm an extrovert. And that means I gain energy from being in the space with people. I literally can go to a place where uh, where I'm tired and I can be have been working all day, but I can get around a group of people and I just get energy and I can be there the next two or three hours not even thinking about that. So nothing against uh, kind of electronic, uh, I mean, virtual ways of engaging. But for me as a kid, that would have meant all the world to have been in this space and with those with those teachers. So I think that has changed us. I think it has changed teachers. I think it has changed the way we are interacting and engaged. And I also think that uh, I, I talked about economics for me as a kid growing up in poverty uh, in a predominantly black school district. Um, that is now it, it wasn't, I think, at the time, those teachers who came to my aid, who understood my story, happened to be black teachers who could see something in me, but at the same time, look beyond and look within my racial identity and see that as a strength. Um, I do know some of my students have shared this with me and I have engaged with a number of, uh, of leaders who don't have that, that cultural referent, right? Who don't have that way of understanding uh, black culture and black identity and what it means to be in a space where sometimes uh, my teachers were preparing me for a world that would not be so affirming after I left that space with them at uh, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, middle school. Uh, because I went, went to a high school that was integrated and there were a few more um, uh, white teachers there and white students. And I had some white teachers in my middle school, don't, don't get me wrong. But I, I was in a space now, I was on what was called the college prep. And we can talk about tracking here in the U.S. a little bit later. But on that track... There were times when I was in courses where I was uh, one of two or three black students and I may not have had a black teacher. Right. And so nowadays, bringing that back up to where we are now, I find a lot of my white students, my my white teachers who are aspiring leaders will say they have not had that kind of engagement with black students with, with, you know, what would be referred to in America as black culture. Therefore, sometimes they miss things. Right. Uh, because of their own kinds, of, because of their identity, and because of what they, how they have come up, they oftentimes have negative connotations about how black children engage, or they recognize or don't recognize some of those broader stereotypes about our ways of learning and le- ways of engaging, and therefore they fall to this uh, into this thinking that uh, maybe black students are not as interested in academic engagement. You know, maybe we can get them just interested in, in the sports. And I'm not saying that those two things have to be exclusive. I'm just saying sometimes people don't recognize that. Or you have a situation where they're always thinking of 
in the back of their mind, even when they're not conscious of it, that the way to discipline black children is to consider sending them uh, to in-school suspension or out-of-school suspension. And therefore, in America, we have this, this issue around disproportionality because black kids are referred to at a higher rate than white kids and, uh, and Asian kids. Uh, so, so that takes you out of the education environment when there are other ways that you can engage with those students by asking some questions, by even saying, hey, look, I know what your potential is and we're going to have to say to you, we want to keep you in the community, we want to keep you in the education environment. However, I need you to be present and I need you to you know, be on task and do this work. And so those things meant the world to me. And I, I, I know that there are some teachers who still understand that and are getting it and are doing that. But I also know that there are some of my students who uh, admittedly say, yeah, I would have been the one uh, sort of sending this student because I think that's what I've been taught because we haven't had a conversation on doing something else and doing something different. Right. That's it. That's really interesting. I do find it so bizarre that in this day and age, especially with how with how much technology has been involved with education, especially since the pandemic, you've got this ex- genuine exposure to different cultures, different types of people. It's not just within like black, be white in America, but it's near global now. You can kind of meet people from so many, so many different cultures that there's still mm-hmm. this like not full understanding of it. Do, how, how have you kind of, so you're obviously you're a professor and I'm assuming you're mainly teaching students and stuff like that, but do you do a lot of like helping and teaching with teachers as well on how to interact with people from different ethnicities and stuff? Yes, yes, um, I, I do. So, so within my courses, um, we often give teachers, um, aspiring leaders, I should say. Some of my students are, are teachers, but many of them um, are in, um, are, are some, I should say, are also uh, already in leadership positions. So, for instance, in our Urban Education Leaders uh, Program, we have students who aspire to be uh, district leaders. So they want to be what we would call superintendents, uh, leaders over the entire district. So uh, they may already be principals. They could be central office administrators. So one of the things that happened during the pandemic um, was the the class that I was teaching had to, when March happened, it was like it immediately needed to be shifted online. And so one of the activities that we do as a part of that class, and, and we do this also in our book, I should say, we didn't talk, but over my uh, shoulder, you'll see the uh, the book Five Practices for Equity Focused School Leadership. And we do get later, give folks yeah. an opportunity to go through those steps uh, of what I'm about to describe now. But we give we give teachers, all of our, our, our teachers and leaders, an opportunity to reflect deeply on their identity. So when you asked me, and I love what the question you started with, you gave me a chance to talk about who I am and where I came from and how did I arrive at this point? We happen to believe, and there's a there's research that supports this, that leaders can benefit from reflecting on their own experiences. In other words, how did you come up in America? Did you come up in a community, a neighborhood that was racially segregated? I mean, you were you were in a, a, a space where you didn't get a chance to interact with uh, people who were different from you culturally, and how does that impact who you are as a leader? So personally, we we do what's called. Um, a racial autobiography or racial reflections in the book. So it just starts by people really asking introspective questions about who they are, how they arrived at where they are. And we believe that has an impact on who you are as a leader and how you do your work. Um, So my research speaks directly to that. In other words, you'll see a a common thread that that asks, what is the impact of a leader's racial and cultural identity on their practice as a leader? And that's an important question because there are things that you're conscious of in your leadership and then there are things that you're not conscious of. And by going through this exercise, you get a chance to see where you might fit, for instance, in a in the racial hierarchy. I mean, what, how familiar are you with that concept? Because technically in the United States, the racial hierarchy, that way of categorizing people by levels of value based on their racial identity is supposed to be defunct. It's supposed to be something that we don't refer to, but we recognize that people are highly sensitive to these things. And once again, they impact how we categorize students, how we interact and engage with students. For instance, some people believe stereotypically that black men are more intimidating. If you believe young black boys are more intimidating, therefore, when you start to think about when they come into your space, 
you're really thinking in the back of your mind, should they be in the classroom? Are they really interested in learning? Are they interested in intimidating people? So if you haven't examined that, if you haven't examined coming up in a community that may not, may not have addressed that question directly, but may have said to you, oh, only in your most difficult classes will you see students who are not black. You may pick up or may come to the conclusion that black kids are not interested in uh, higher level courses. Black kids are not interested in calculus. They're not interested in advanced uh, English. So you could pick that up. And in fact, I argue that you have already picked that up, right? So those are the kinds of things that we give people the space to uh, interrogate in their lives personally. But also we want to make sure that it starts there, but we're raising that conversation to what it means historically in our country, structurally in our country, right? Because there are some historical things that have happened that we all have an understanding of what that means historically uh, and how it impacts, uh, the, say, the, the school system, for instance. There's a history of doing discipline badly in, American, in, in, in American schools. So what does it mean if you have learned the wrong way to do that? And what are some of the structures in place that we continue to emphasize and put into place and say that these are just things that are race neutral when in fact they have very real implications for the lives of students, uh, especially black students. Mm. And what what did you, speaking on like the, the leadership point, do you, because I've always had this question with myself is, do you feel like leaders are kind of like born with certain characteristics or they characteristics that you can kind of learn? And how has race impacted those kind of characteristics or experiences yes. and cultures? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, wonderful, wonderful question, Cameron. So I would say leadership is certainly something that there's a large part of it that is going to be learned. And once you have learned certain principles around leadership, you get an opportunity to put those in, into practice. And those become behaviors that you become uh, better at, at engaging in and, and, you know, really trying it out with people. So one of the things I discuss in the book is this idea of, um, I could just say, going through a way of uh, doing this practice, too, where you interrogate uh, yourself through. We talk about and start with uh, this racial identity, but there are other aspects of identity. Right. So how do you think about this around uh, socioeconomic status? How do you think about this around? Uh, language. How do you think around about this around gender identity? So once you had a chance to go through all of the, those identities, then you need to start thinking about how do I engage with members of my team? Traditional ways of leading, which I sometimes call like the heroic approach to leadership, will say to you that, oh, well, this is a person who leads because they're at the top of the chain, so to speak, the top of the food chain, some terms people will use, and then everybody should look up to me. I would argue that you need to lead from the top of a circle. And by that, I mean, when you come into a space, you need to be thinking about, thinking about running your meetings differently. So in other words, you're not the only person creating the agenda. You're not the only person uh, passing the information from on high, so to speak, but you're offering ways for people to engage with you around uh, this, this input. So we start talking about, uh, just take a, a term I've written on called cultural responsive school leadership. The first point in cultural responsive leadership or the first tenet talks about critical consciousness. That means you need to have an understanding of historically what it has meant for people in America to lead. So for a lot of people, when they see the leader of any organization, schools included, they look for particular folks by in terms of identity. They look for white male leaders. And there's even research that says we could be called as the trait leadership research that said leaders should be uh, over, you know, approaching six feet tall or taller. You know, they should have a particular type of voice, uh, authority when they speak. So all of these things. People would say, oh, that's ridiculous. Now, nobody looks for a leader to be a white man who's six feet taller. But I can say to you that I've done research and it's confirmed. Even my students will say, I know a, a black woman who's a principal, a former principal in Harlem, would have people walk into a school and each time they would say, where's the principal? And she would say to them, you know, I'm the principal, I'm introduce herself. And she talked to the person a couple more minutes and said, it's great to meet you. Wonderful. Still looking for the principal. What time would the principal be here? 
And initially for her, that was kind of a confusing kind of exchange. But thinking back on the awareness of what we studied, historically, if you go back, that's what people saw. And even though people say, oh, nobody really thinks like that anymore, people make that blunder each and every time. That's not just a simple blunder. That is something that we tend to do over and over again. We emphasize early on who should be leaders. We talk to them as, as they can be leaders and we support their leadership development. And so if we haven't gone through an awareness of that and interrogated our identity, we will make that blunder over and over again. Not only who we would talk about who should be leaders, but who we would emphasize and call leaders and give opportunities to, to become leaders. And, and, we, and the same thing is true when we go into a space and start trying to lead by team. We have to have some kind of theories to base that on. And that moving from the critical consciousness, we have to build teams that are more collaborative, that uh, really ask for input, right, from everybody. And then also that show, last point I'll make, a, a sense of vulnerability, which once again is something that's not always expected in leadership. But one of the things I recommend is when you do that racial reflection as a leader, I recommend doing that with a team of folks, but also you as the leader sharing your racial autobiography first. And what that means is it's going to make you very, very vulnerable. It's going to make you share some personal things that you don't want to do uh, necessarily in front of a group of folks, even if you work with them every day. But it shows people that you as a leader are showing vulnerability as a strength. I am opening up the doors of who I am and helping you understand that if I make blunders, Correction, when I make mistakes, it is because I may be responding to something in my past or something that impacts my leadership and my learning. But I want to incorporate that and do better and move forward and not say I'm going to hide that in the closet. And so by me showing you that, hopefully it will make you feel better about sharing that with your colleagues um, as you move forward and grow together. Mm, it's kind of like that. Um, what I'm getting from you is that that everyone understanding your everyone needs to understand different people's kind of perspective from their lives. So if you know someone's life story to a certain degree, you can kind of understand why they're reacting this way and not think, taking it so personally and being that kind of leader to go, look, I'm going to explain why I'm like this and I might react like this, but trust me, I'm, this is my goal and then we're all going to work together to kind of get there. If you've got anything you need to share, share where you're coming from and I know how to react to you so we can all go to this kind of main goal. Is that kind of where you're going around with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and taking that a step further, we actually start to see some inconsistencies within the system and moving that to a higher level of thinking, we recognize our role in that system together, you know, because in many ways we're both contributing to it. And I always try to correct folks and say, if you're not interrogating the status quo, if you're not interrogating the current system, there's a high likelihood that you're supporting what it does, right? There's a high likelihood that you continue to give it energy to continue to oppress people. But if we do that together, think about the power of what this would mean if you have uh, a black man, you know, next to say somebody who identifies as a white woman, because we find that, you know, in America, it is true that the majority of our teachers are white women. But if you have a black man working shoulder to shoulder with a white woman, sharing his story, understanding her story, the power of, of those two folks coming together and saying, here's how we sit within the racial hierarchy of the United States. There's some roles that have been defined for us, right? There's some tensions in history, in history that have been that has been defined between us. But if we don't talk about that, if we don't talk about what that means in America, then we end up using some really critically abusive and dangerous language. Uh, I just give you, and this happens, there are multiple examples of this, but one that just happened recently, we have a Congress, a congressman uh, from, from New York named Jamal Bowman, and you, you, your listeners can actually look this up online, but Jamal Bowman got in a, 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 uh, a, a debate with Marjorie Greene, who is as a white woman, and these are two folks, you know, who both are influential in their parties, Marjorie uh, uh, Greene is very conservative, and and, and Jamal Bowman is uh, a Democrat who would be considered a liberal. And they had a debate. You know, I think it was on the steps of one of, um, in, in, in Congress. Uh, but they had a debate. And they, there were even points where they were, they were laughing. And, 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 of course, Jamal is uh, a, a handsome brother, tall, you know, doing his hand motions. 
you know, it was it was like it, it, I liked it because it was like in traditional sense of people engaging around uh, the issues, the policy issues. And there were times when Marjorie uh, Green actually smiled and, you know, she said her thing. And, she, and so but the, at the end of that debate, they interviewed both of them and, and they interviewed Marjorie Green. And one of the things that she said as a white woman, she used language like. Uh, Jamal Bowman was intimidating and, and, and I, I felt threatened and I felt, and it's funny that as a white woman from the South, she's actually from my home state of Georgia. Right? I have to claim, claim that that's where she's from, but she used very loaded terms. Right. And then they had Jamal Bowman who, who was interviewed and he recognized right off. He said, no, these were terms that are not even dog whistle terms, which, which are like implied clues. These were actual. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Incendiary terms, problematic terms that were used. And that kind of language is steeped in American history between black men and white women. The, the fact that all black men, you know, was presumed at one time could be charged at any point with wanting to rape white women. And there, historically, there are black men who have lost their lives. And he put, he pulls that in. Like people, we know the, the most famous uh, example, a horrible example we know of is, is Emmett Till, who was a 14-year-old boy who, who was killed because he was supposedly whistling at a white woman. People say, oh, that's ancient history. It is not. It is not. And so when we hear those terms and they are not, if, they, if those kinds of phrases, for instance, are uninterrogated and unattached, to our history, we get people on the side of Marjorie Greene saying, oh, yeah, I did feel like Jamal Bowman was intimidated. There were times during this debate that they both were smiling, right? So if you were intimidated, would you really have been there? Would he have really been intimidating you in a, on, in a public square? What would he have done to you? You know, like if, if that black man had done anything to that white woman, right? In our minds, we, if we had seen that in the, on, on television, so many of us would have been like, oh, my God. Because we know those histories. We carry those in our bodies and in our spirits. And growing up in the South as a black man, I was keenly, keenly aware of that. My mother was aware of that. I mean, there, there are black people in the South who still say to their kids, you know, you, you have to be very careful about where you end up and where you go. And, and, and correction, not just in the South, but I'm just kind of speaking about what was happening for me in the South that has not disappeared entirely in America. And we do that because... Uh, black mothers will say all the times. And when, when I was a, a secondary mathematics teacher, I worked with a group called Mothers to Son, uh, and and that was a group of brothers who really, um, not just brothers, but we worked worked with mothers who were really concerned and interested about black men's perspectives on what it means to bring up your son in the space when the man may not be present in the household and get support for them because. It's very real that mothers, it's a very real fear that mothers have when their sons go out as teenagers and they're, they're, they're wanting them to come home each day. And there's a fear that they may not, if perhaps, that they make the wrong move, especially in the space 
uh, with law enforcement officers. And people can say what they want, but that is a that is a reality in America that uh, black men know about and and certainly black parents who have sons know about because it's happened time and time again. And what gives that fuel is language that was used by that congressperson. No, I completely Marjorie. agree. It's one of the reasons, like, I'm known to, I, I travel quite a lot. I've got my own travel YouTube and I do it a lot with my kids. And one of the areas I really want to go to in America is New Orleans. Um, I'm really into my jazz and stuff and I really want to take the kids to go there. But I've always had this fear of going to America with black kids and not fully knowing the extent of how dangerous it can be being black in, the, in that area. So it, from across the pond, you know, I, I feel those pressures as well. So it's definitely 100% a real thing. Um, but going back more to the education stuff. So could you kind of help our listeners understand, and I'll keep this very um, open to how you want to des- describe this, but what is education equity? Absolutely. So education equity is really providing each kid with the opportunity to get what they need. And this is, uh, I want to contrast that with folks uh, uh who, who really have had this ongoing debate about equity versus uh, equality. And equity means really you're going to be presented, uh, sometimes, some people will say this idea of, you know, getting, um, uh, you know, it's where unequals get, um, that's when people start off uh, in, in different areas. And, and I like to just to say that uh, equity is really steeped in a kind of a historical uh, context versus equality, right? And so it, it's, a, it's a matter of giving each child an opportunity to reach their full potential by making sure they have what they need to do that. And um, the difference in terms of equality is it's not necessarily a bad thing, but equality has an underlying assumption and it's ahistorical because it, it says everybody gets the same thing. And, it, and that not to oversimplify it, but that's essentially what it says. And people say, well, we all should get you know the same thing. That assumes we all started from the same point. And what I've been describing thus far is that inequities happen for certain kids, uh, for a great number of kids, because of who we are, what we come to the table with as educators to some extent, but also because of what has happened historically in our society. And to just say that we're going to support equality is ignoring that fact. It ignores, it ignores the fact that we do have some kids who are recommended for suspension more than others. Why is that, right? For instance, black kids making up 16% of the population, but making up uh, 48% of the, 42% of the kids who are referred to for, uh, for the first time to uh, be suspended. You know, why do we have that? Is it that we believe that black kids are inherently bad and then this is the best way to educate them? Or is it something going on with us around constructions of inequity that cause us to believe that this is the best response? And if we don't interrogate that, you know, we end up with, 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 with issues that once again, they're steeped in history, they're steeped in our, in our structures, they're steeped in, in, in our policies and our procedures. And if we haven't examined those, we continue to create more inequities. And, and that's so that in, in, um, ends up with the opposite of what we were saying about, you know, what equity is. Uh, so so if, if we don't interrogate the inequity, we end up, you know, um, uh, if we don't interrogate uh, and first of all, I did get a definition, clear definition of what equity is we ended up just continuing to create more inequities. And I hope that was clear in terms of definition. No, no, I always try to sense. give up. Does that, did that make sense, Cameron? Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me. I remember seeing this picture that was circling around the internet, which kind of was such a beautiful way of describing the different ways of how those two kind of interact, where it's like you've got these three kids of different heights trying to look over a fence to watch a baseball game. And the equity is the kind of giving them the right height of bench to be able to see over rather giving everyone mm-hmm. the same amount and then like one kid gets a really good view and another kid gets absolutely nothing it's about giving people what they need um which i completely understand that was a perfect um, explanation of it as well so um 
going on to the kind of edu- educational equity side of things, what are the kind of, like, like you said in your book, the kind of five practices for increasing educational equity um, and, and eliminating that marginalization based on, you know, like race and disability and social and language and gender and all the extra stuff on there. Yes. And, and I'll say one thing about that picture, because some some of us have come back and said, you know, when they're watching, the, I think this when they're watching the uh, the game. Right. And, and yeah, so they yeah, have yeah, different yeah. boxes. And and so one one really push of that on, on that a little bit more. And I've talked to my uh, students and, and some leaders about this as well is, you know, wouldn't it be more equitable if we just got rid of the fence altogether? Yes. Right. Right. Of course. It, but in, and I see that as moving through time. It, but in the meantime, we've got to change the levels of those heights. But ultimately, that barrier needs to just be moved. Right. Yeah. And so when we think about that barrier, right, you can extend this discussion in many ways. So people start to say, "Ooh, would, would there be financial implications for some people? Would, you know, why couldn't they get access to? To the game in the first, so so we 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 bring that up and, and want to return to that, you know, for sure. Just I just want to make that that one point. Um, mm-hmm. So let me let me see if I understand your question again. What, what would you ask me again that last one, just so I make sure I understand it? It's basically just kind of go into more detail about the kind of five practices for increasing that um, educational equity. How do, what's the five things that we kind of need to do to create educational equity? And it kind of in doing so will eliminate the kind of make that like marginalized. Um, kind of thoughts around race and, and socialomics and language and all that kind of stuff. What's those five practices? Absolutely. So uh, in some, first, prioritize. We have to prioritize equity. It needs to be first and it needs to be integrated in our systems. And we only do that by making it first. We, so we have to prioritize. Prepare. We talked a little bit about you doing your own work emotionally and intellectually around your identity. You know, what does that mean once you get into that space to engage. Uh, the third piece is assemble. You know, you can think about the Avengers if you want to. You have to assemble your team and you have to be really intentional about assembling that team because it makes it makes a huge difference in how you get the support uh, of, of, of doing equity work. We say uh, I, I, in the field, equity is not for the faint of heart. And, and I actually believe that and I say that all the time. So you're going to get tired, but you have to have that team assembled to support you. So um, uh, change, equity is change work on steroids, right? You know, you, yeah. you know, people don't like change, right? Uh, it, it's just it's just a known fact that you say to folks, you know what? We're going to ask you to change the, the way you go to work tomorrow. Oh my god! Like, but I, I, you know, people will start to tell you all the reasons why I can't do that. How it's going to throw me off. Think about if you come in and say, I'm going to want you to change the way that you engage around equity now you want me to change and you want me to think about my identity so all kinds of like like responses around what is that going to mean now i've had people i've come into space to train leaders and and folks have waited to the end of the workshop and they'll come up to me and they say oh this is really good this was engaging and this be you know oftentimes it's not always it's maybe some some white colleagues and they'd be like you know i thought you were just going to come in and call me a racist i thought you were going to call everybody a racist Really, you thought that was going to be the depth. So it's that response to what change is. And then last thing is sustain. This work needs to be sustained. It needs to continue. It needs to go forward. So we have to think about what it means to not only move from changing the work, changing the system, which we do a little bit every day. How do we sustain this work? How do we really embed it within those systems? And so that gets me back to what I started with. The prioritize means to start with it first but integrated into those systems and move it all the way to this point where we want it to, we want it to live. We want this to live forever. So we want to make sure that we, we sustain it until that day when we don't need this anymore. And, and we are so far away from that. So we have a lot of work to do. Good. Yeah. And, and before you mentioned kind of a bit about the like systematic um, implications of how it, we've gotten to the stage that we're in. So what kind of strategies do you have for like engaging the different school communities in transformative system change? Like how, how are you going to get these different plans and processes in place so it is sustainable? Beautiful question. Beautiful question. Well, I like to say equity is something that you do uh, bit by bit and every day. So you have to ask yourselves, uh, you know, as, as leaders, I 
I'm, I'm in many ways biased because I think leaders, uh, uh, principals of schools in, in particular have a huge impact on what happens in the building. And it starts with them. Uh, it starts with them moving through the step of, of creating that team. And when I say integrating this in their work, uh, I talked about discipline, but what does this look like uh, in terms of your academics, in terms of your curriculum? I mean, who has access to uh, as, you know, all aspects of the curriculum? I mean, who, who's, who really shows up in your curriculum, right? Uh, I know this is a dope black dad, so I can give a plug out for, for speaking with my, I have a 15 year old daughter. And right now she is reading uh, Toni Morrison's, um, uh, I almost said beloved, that's not what she's reading. Um, gosh, I just had a, a, a mental blank there, <laughs> but it'll come back. Anyway, Pecola Breedlove, she, she is reading that and we're reading that uh, together. Uh, and it's fantastic because the school is, it, we, we talked about Toni Morrison, right? And uh, the bluest eye came back. Yeah. Uh, but she, she's reading the bluest eye. And, and when she was coming up to it, getting ready to read, we've been talking about this. And I said, I'm going to read that with you. But there are some schools you may have heard in the United States where the bluest eye is being banned, right? Because wow. of the material that's, you know, controversial. Toni Morrison is one of the greatest American writers, if not the great. Brilliant writer. My favorite book is Song of Solomon. I told my daughter that early on. But as a black girl coming up, it's important that she reads the story of Bacola Breedlove and she sees what's, what's happening with Claudia and Frida. I mean, there's some themes in there, but that, that may be considered more mature. But I'd say to my daughter, you know, this is probably not anything different than you hear like in music, right? And, and so we talk about that. And so I say all that to say because that the school district has that as a part of the curriculum and they kept it. But there are schools and districts where this is being banned. But an equity leader, equity leader has to make their argument, right? When we look across our curriculum, how many black authors are represented? How many diverse authors, Latinx authors are represented? How many Asian uh, American uh, Pacific Islander authors are represented? And if we don't have any, something is wrong, right? So an equity leader starts to integrate that within the system and talks with her or his team about what that looks like as they move this conversation you know, forward, or their team, I should say. Right, okay. And, and speaking on the fact that obviously you've got your daughter yourself, you're a man who's very well-versed and well in, um, known in the kind of educational world. How have you found it like teaching your daughter and, and being involved in her education while being in that industry as well? Absolutely. Well, but it's, uh, it's a funny thing. Um, with the 15 year old, sometimes, you know, you, we, it's, it's more of a negotiation. When my daughter was younger, it was much more, my wife and I had a little more say. Now it's sort of like, okay, are you showing up at the school to embarrass me? Um, and a funny story, I, I actually did some work with the, uh, the, the, the leaders here in the district and my daughter, uh, joined the debate team and I got her to do this. You know, she wouldn't do it the first year because it was my suggestion and I, silly me, I should have just, it has to be her suggestion. So um, <laughs> anyway, she was invited. The whole debate team was invited to speak at a board meeting. And, and I came in and I'm always teasing her with her friends. And and so we have a lot of fun with this. But uh, one of the time when I came in, there were several people speaking and, and I know board members. And so her friends were like, who is your dad? What is going on? And and, and, and I was telling my daughter, well, who, tell them who I am. And she's like, well, you tell them who you are. And we went back and forth. So it's kind of a cute moment. So she finally says, okay, he's a professor. He does some leadership stuff. And so they say, oh, that's kind of cool. And I, and I tell my daughter, I'm like, see, I told you your friends are there. She said, nobody thinks you're cool. Stop it. You know, but we have a good time. And she has excelled at debate. Um, and I have supported her not only in that, but in other things uh, as well. And I've had to find points where I have to back off. You know, um, sometimes it doesn't help being Dr. Gooden because she needs to establish her own identity. Um, uh, and I may have said, you probably saw my bio, I'm a, I'm a former mathematics teacher and my daughter was really engaged with math early on and she wanted to do it. And I was so excited and, I, and she was excited for a time and then she wasn't excited anymore. And then it was like, I was going to tutor her throughout. And I thought maybe high school might be a bit much because uh, I used to be a high school math, uh, mathematics teacher, but it, it turns out it, it wasn't it wasn't the best thing. And I had to kind of back off and say, I'm happy to pay for a tutor. You know, uh, but we were bumping heads there. And so 
I had to recognize again, she doesn't need the expert Dr. Gooden who works with leaders and who she used to be a math teacher. She needs her dad to recognize what it is she needs to grow in particular spaces. And and I was somewhat brokenhearted that she sort of turned away. She's still engaged in math. I mean, you know, she's still pretty proficient in it, but she's doing it her own way. And so as an expert, we have to know when to um, hang that at the door, so to speak, uh, just because uh, here as, as the dad, I, I can't be, you know, overbearing. And of course, my wife, uh, my partner uh, in, in, in life and all of this is absolutely wonderful. And my wife is on it when she's doing all the announcements and finding out what's happening and making recommendations. So we do what we can to, to be a team. But uh, but if, as anyone knows, at 15, uh, I say my daughter, my daughter's 15 and full of fire. You know, they have sometimes she wakes up this morning. She she after good morning, she had a list of criticism for us. Like, OK, well, we, we're still trying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're doing yeah, the best yeah. we can. But. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I respect that so much because you, you often hear of how like when you're, you're a parent who's very passionate about something that your kid's really good at as well is you kind of want to be like, oh, wow, I want to take over and train them into the best that they can have. And you see the potential, but being able to be like, let me step back, let them go there, find their own feet, find their own way. That, that's a right. huge skill as a parent. I 100% respect. I try myself to kind of bring in. So, you know, kudos to that. Um, and uh, we're running out of time, but just to um, go back to the kind of the educational uh, equity stuff again, um, I did have a question, like, how do you address like the legal issues that are related to equity in education? Wonderful question. Um, so there, there are many ways to address this. One is I, I say to leaders, you know, make sure that you have some understanding of uh, what some of these state laws are saying right now. And and sometimes the state laws actually are supportive of the equity work that you're doing. Believe it or not, there's this push against critical race theory here. But if you read some of those laws, yeah, many of them say you can't do something. I mean, they say some of them say silly things like you can't teach that one race is superior to another race. I don't know anybody who's doing that necessarily. Um, but I do know folks who, you know, in the equity work kind of kind of push that that I, I should say I've heard of people who push that. But one of the things I say to them is the curriculum also gives you space, for instance, that says you should be teaching a diverse set of authors. You can say to them, the law kind of is not consistent with what the curriculum says we should be doing. This is good leadership. This is this is good teaching. Um, also, we have here called a um, First Amendment rights of students. We have Tinker versus Des Moines of 1969, and students have had First Amendment rights since that time, right? You know, some could argue before. And we, as educators and leaders, have to recognize those rights as long as they, their First Amendment rights, as long as they don't cause a material and substantial disruption to the educational environment or interfere with the rights of other kids. And so when we say that, kids may wear, you know, I'm wearing my good trouble shirt today, you know, by John Lewis, you know, famous congressman and, 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 and educator, uh, a true historian, right? We can teach about John Lewis, right? We should teach about a statesman like John Lewis. And we should give people pushback to say, look, he's speaking about First Amendment. He's talking about ways that students can get access. And this, this is democracy. This is a government. So I think uh, leaders have to be really versed in the law and what they can do and explain that to people. And sometimes uh, school board members who have not had the same degree of education, they don't understand school law. I mean, school law is pretty complicated. I have a class that I teach on that. But when leaders understand that and explain to them that there is access that we should be given to students. And there's a controversial case called uh, 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 PICO in, in America, Board of Violent Trees versus PICO, PICO, Pico where, where it talks about access to the curriculum and books and these kinds of things. And educators just have to have an understanding of what that means. And, and my last point is that I'll make is, you know, there are cases where parents will say, uh, no students should get access to the bluest eye because I think it's controversial. Well, smart boards, boards of education and school leaders come up with a policy where parents can say, you can opt out for your kid, right? But you're limited in how much you can control the curriculum. It is a, it is a public school, right? And so there are things that we can decide upon that we can provide access to. Uh, but if you don't want your kid in this, we totally understand. But it's just that second part. These parents saying, I'm overreaching, saying, 
I want nobody to be able to read The Blue Is High by Tony Morrison, Tony Morrison, because I think it's a, I think it's offensive to me. Well, there are a lot of people, you know, she is a Nobel, Nobel Prize winner, who happen to believe that this is, once again, one of the best writers in America. And this is a really good book for kids to be reading. It's, it, it starts with kids who are 10 and 11. Yeah, they're seeing some mature content, but once again, this is, this is things that we should definitely be thinking about exposing high school kids to. Maybe it's not appropriate for, you know, it's not for third or fourth graders, but there are books that are appropriate. Behind me, I have a book called, um, I've, 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 it's, it's a really called Ghost Boys. And it's about um, a, a kid who was, uh, a kid who was murdered, a black kid who was murdered by a white police officer. And he comes back as a ghost and he can only be seen by the, um, by the police officer's daughter. Good story oh, wow. that gets into really deep concepts, not cop bashing or any of that. But there are parents who would say that book should not be read and it's not age appropriate. I would argue differently because it is written for, you know, fifth graders and it's this it's age appropriate. And I think the content gets students into what the curriculum says they should be. So I know that's a long answer, Cameron. I'll stop. I'm probably way over time. No, no, no. But, uh, no, not yeah. at all. Like that, that, that's so, so important and so interesting because I, I completely agree. I think with things that are very controversial, I think that's exactly what kids and people need to be exposed to because they're going to be exposed to it at some point in their life. Right. The key is being able to show them that stuff and then being mature enough and you able to kind of share various perspectives. And it goes back to that that point if we're going full circle, like what you said to make a, a true leader because a parent is a leader to their kids, right? Is that ability right. to explain a situation and a perspective, hear another person's perspective and you're all going towards this goal. You can still tell your kids if you feel something's good or bad, but you have to expose them to that and say, this is good or this is bad. And this is why I think it's that and have them have their own opinions. And I think that all comes from, like you said, exposure. So no, I completely relate, my man. Um, but yeah, listen, thank you so much, Mark, for this conversation. It's been eye-opening. And it's been really interesting to kind of learn about your story. Um, I've definitely learned a lot from there. So to everyone that's been listening, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this podcast and I will see you in the next one. See you later. All right. Thanks, Cameron. Dope Black Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.